Don Mockholtz, and you're listening to Looking Up with Don. This is the Looking Up with Don podcast, episode number 136, for the week of August 10th, 2022. The related website for this podcast is donmacholtz.com. That is spelled D-O-N-M-A-C-H-H-O-L-Z.com. Two H's. What's up in the sky this week? As our week begins on Wednesday, August 10th, the moon will be 98% full and up for the whole night. It reaches full moon on August 12th at 0135 Universal Time. By next Tuesday, August 16th, the moon will be 75% full and rising a couple hours after the end of evening twilight. The Perseid meteor shower is still ongoing with the peak of the shower later this week, but the moon will interfere with seeing the fainter meteors. Saturn reaches opposition this Sunday, August 14th. That is when the Earth is between Saturn and the Sun, and we are as close as we get to it this year. This occurs every 54 weeks. There is one phenomenon I want you to look for this year, and it occurs only when Saturn is at opposition. It is known as the opposition surge, also known as a Salinger effect. Normally, the rings of Saturn are about the same surface brightness as the globe of the planet. But for a few days, either side of opposition, the rings brighten. This is due to a couple of things. One is the lack of shadow as the sun is shining on Saturn from behind us. And it's also due to coherent light reflection off the particles of the ring. So beginning this weekend, Friday, August 12th, through Tuesday, August 16th, look at Saturn and notice the increased brightness of the rings. Will you be able to see the International Space Station this week? which for our purposes begins Wednesday, August 10th through Tuesday, August 16th. It depends upon where you are located. This week we have three zones. All you need to know is your latitude. Two zones will not see it at all this week. North of 15 degrees north and south of 45 degrees south. That's actually most of you. No ISS this week. Between 15 degrees north and 45 degrees south, the International Space Station will be in your evening sky for part of the week and in your morning sky for part of the week. To determine where it will be in your sky, go to the website heavens-above.com, enter your location, then click on ISS. 
What follows is the story of my eighth comet discovery, which took place on August 13th, 1994. This year, in these podcasts, I'm going over the story of each of my comet discoveries near the time of the year when each occurred. You can also find the story with pictures at my website, donmockholtz.com. Here it is with commentary. It's always interesting to find an unusual comet. You not only have the satisfaction and joy of discovering a new comet, but you also have the series of surprises that follow. Such a comet is the gift that keeps on giving. This was a situation for me during the appearance of periodic Comet Mockholtz 2 in August 1994. To backtrack a little bit, on July 6, 1994, I discovered a comet in the North Polar part of the sky. In the five weeks since then, I've been out comet hunting for 46 and a half hours in 21 sessions. By August 13th, I was now in my 11th comet hunting session of August, being out 11 of 13 nights, and the 14th night out in 17 days. I sometimes wonder, how come I found three comets in four months in 1994? What did I do different then that I had not done prior or since then? Not really very much, but as you can see, I was out there quite frequently searching for comets. On Saturday, August 13th, my wife and two sons had been gone for most of the week, visiting my wife's family in San Jose. I was working as an electronic technician five days a week in Rancho Cordova. At the same time, I was writing a book about the Messe Marathon. I have a notebook in my folder for this comet, and for every comet discovery, I have a notebook and a folder. But this particular one has notes to myself of things to do. Living by myself for this one week in August of 94 at my house, I had chores I had to do every day. For instance, had to pick up the mail and feed the pets. And as I looked at my notebook recently for that week, as I neared Saturday, house cleaning chores crept up on my list, cleaning the house prior to my family returning. And nearly every night, also written in my schedule book, I went comet hunting, allowing only about three to four hours of sleep per night. It was a busy week. On the evening of August 12th, I swept the evening sky for 1.25 hours, then went to bed by 11 p.m. Three hours later, I woke up about 2 a.m. for a short time of meteor watching for the Pleiades, which I did in a sleeping bag in a lawn chair near the observatory. I got up and began comet hunting at 2.40. At 2.56 a.m., Pacific Daylight Time, after 16 minutes of sweeping a polar region, I picked up a faint fuzzy object. I was using my 10-inch, 25-centimeter reflector telescope at 36 power. 
Now, I got that magnification by using a 32 millimeter eyepiece with a minus four Diopler negative lens pressed into the eyepiece barrel to increase the magnification slightly. This works something like a Barlow lens and took the magnification from about 32 to 36. The scope is mounted on an English fork mount in my observatory in Koufax, California. I knew almost immediately that this was a comet. It appeared diffuse with some condensation, and I knew that no clusters, nebula, or galaxies were in the area. I went southward to find the open cluster 1502 to confirm my location. The discovery location was near a star asterism, a string of stars known as Kemble's Cascade. The song, Oh Baby Baby, by Linda Rodstead was playing on the radio. After double-checking my star charts, roughing out a position, and making a drawing for motion, I went into the house, booted up my old IBM 286 computer, and connected to the Smithsonian Astrophysical Observatory, and I used their scanning service to see if any known comets were in the area. None were. So next, I sent them a message. This is a short message. Quote, I am presently checking out a cometary object at 4 hours 12 minutes plus 63.8 degrees magnitude 10.5. More later. Don Mockles. End quote. Note that I made an error in the message and was off by one degree in the declination, saying 63.8 rather than 62.8. That was later corrected. Well, then I returned to the telescope, and I noticed that the comet had indeed moved slightly. Now this is finally confirmation that it is, in fact, a comet. Over the next two hours, I plotted its position in addition to continuing my comet hunting of the polar region. By the way, more than half the time when I have discovered a comet, after I've secured the position and made a drawing to check for motion, I will go back and continue comet hunting for a new comet in that area while I'm waiting for time to pass to check for motion of the original object. At twilight, I took one last look at the comet, then came back into the house and transmitted three positions for it to the Smithsonian on their teletype machine. I also phoned Dan Green's phone number and left a message. Dr. Marsden at that time was in Europe. The comet was moving greater than two degrees per day. It also changed in appearance during this time, becoming more diffuse. With now a little free time, I went to bed for 90 minutes. <laughs> I was up again when I received a, call, a phone call from Gareth Williams from the Smithsonian saying that he would ask Japan to try to confirm the comet. At 8 a.m., I called my wife, Laura, in San Jose to let her know about the comet discovery. And I followed with two phone calls to fellow amateur astronomers in the San Jose area. Next, I set about doing chores around the house, 
and I wrote up a short summary describing my Messe Marathon book that was not yet finished. I then called a member of the San Jose Astronomical Association, which would be holding a star party that night, and I gave them the coordinates of the comet. But they ended up publishing it on their bulletin board, and they made it public. This was something that Dr. Marsden would later warn me could have cost me the comet, as no one is to publicize a comet's position in those days before it was confirmed and officially announced by the Smithsonian. At 1.20 in the afternoon, Dan Green of the Smithsonian called me to say they would issue a circular announcing the discovery of the comet based only on my observation. But before that was issued, a confirmation from Japan arrived and was placed into the announcement. So the comet was announced as Comet Machholz 1994, the letter O. This comet find was 46 and a half hours and 21 sessions since my previous find five weeks before. A week before I found this comet, it passed 5.2 degrees from the one that I found in July. So for a short time, those comets were, were within six degrees of each other, and this one was still undiscovered. This was the third comet discovery with my 10-inch reflector telescope and my fourth find from Colfax. This was also my second comet discovery within five weeks, and within two months, I would find yet another comet. I missed seeing the comet, this one, a week earlier, twice. So prior to me finding it on August 13th, I swept that area on August 5th. On that morning, the comet was at this position, one hour, 23 minutes, plus 59 and a half degrees. That morning, I covered with my 10-inch telescope from 90 degrees down to 60 degrees, and the comet was at 59 and a half. I usually spill over in the declination, going maybe as far south as 58 degrees or so, and with the equatorial mount sweeping northward only halfway to the North Pole every other sweep. This gives me plenty of overlap. In that session, I picked up a few faint galaxies, but not the comet. Why not? Well, there's three possibilities. Perhaps I did not sweep far south enough to hit the area that it was in. I went as far south as 60, and it was at 59 and a half. Or, since the comet was less than a degree, 50 arc minutes, south of a bright star, Delta Cassiopeia, the field of view might have been dazzled by that star, and I was unable to see the comet in the same field of view. Or, perhaps the comet was too faint, and within the next week it would brighten rapidly or outburst before I would find it a week later. Now, as if that's not enough, missing it on August 5th, the very next morning, August 6th, I covered the area south of the comet. I picked up several faint galaxies with the 10-inch reflector. Now the comet was north of 60 degrees, 
and I covered from 20 degrees up to 60. So why didn't I find it? As with August 5th, we still have a couple factors. One, I did not overlap far enough and go far enough north this time to pick it up. Secondly, maybe it had not yet brightened enough and was still rather faint. Third, it wasn't near that bright star anymore, so that's not the reason. More information was received about this comet on August 23rd. The comet is periodic. It returns every six years, so the name was changed from Comet Machels to Periodic Comet Machels 2, and the 2 was to differentiate it from the comet I had found in 86, which was also periodic. We, we now know the comet made a close approach to Earth in January 1979, within 25 million miles. This was 15 years before I found it. Could it have been discovered in 1979? This is rather incredible. Possibly the comet did not turn on its brightness until 1994, so in 1979 it was still very, maybe very faint. So here's all the times I missed it in 1979. At that time, I was comet hunting from Loma Prieta in the Santa Cruz Mountains in California using the same 10-inch reflector. During evening sweeps on October 22, 1978, six weeks after I had found my first comet, I swept over this comet and did not see it. It would have been 27 degrees high in my southwestern sky and slightly more than one astronomical unit from both the Earth and the Sun. I would expect the brightness would have been fainter than 11 at that time for me to not see it. A month later, on the evening of November 23, 1978, I swept over it again, not seeing it, <laughs> when it was about 8 degrees above my southwestern horizon. Four weeks later, on December 19, 1978, I swept over it and missed it, when it was 19 degrees above my southwestern horizon. Four days later, on December 23, 1978, I again swept the area that it was in, and I failed to see it. It was 13 degrees high in my southwestern sky. So, on four occasions in late 1978, I swept over where the comet was and did not see it. Now, my southwestern horizon does, did have some light pollution in the southwest caused by Santa Cruz and the Monterey Bay area, but that alone could not explain missing it four times. Now, if it behaved in 1978 as it did in 1994, it would have been between magnitude 10.3 in late October to magnitude 8.1 by December 23rd, more than bright enough for me to pick up. So apparently in 1978, when the comet did come close to the Earth, it was not very bright. It did not turn on or outburst like it did when I found it in 94. The next three occasions were dates when I swept areas near the comet but I did not sweep over the comet's position. 
January 22nd, 1979, the comet was in the evening sky, and I swept areas west of it, stopping 10 degrees short of the comet's position. A month later, I again swept areas west of the comet to within 18 degrees of the comet. And March 30th, I stopped sweeping about 20 degrees short of where the comet was. Then on May 13th, 1979, I swept over the comet, but I did not see it. By then, it was pretty far away from both the Earth and the Sun, and it would have been faint. So all those times I missed it back in 78 and 79, apparently the comet had not yet turned on. Now we take our story back to 1994, mid-August. By this time, I also heard the comet had brightened. This occurred while the comet was in moonlit skies and not observed by me. But others saw it and imaged it, and it had brightened by about two to three magnitudes. So this periodic comet has outburst. That should keep us busy for a while. Are there any more surprises from this comet? This next circular nearly knocked my socks off. A report came in by M Michael Yeager, cometary photographer, had found a second comet in the same field of view as this one, located less than a degree away and a bit fainter. A third component was then found, followed by two more. Soon we had five comet pieces all lined up, the main comet plus the fragments, and each was given a letter A through E. Next, the orbit was refined, yielding a very short period of 5.2 years. Finally, as if this wasn't enough, component number A, the one that I found, dimmed, and component number D brightened, presenting us with a double comet within the same field of view. This was most unusual. In late September, I had a memorable view of this comet, a double comet, with each one being magnitude 9, visible actually in binoculars, in the same field of view. This reminded me at the time of the now lost comet Biela, which in 1846 also had a double comet appearance. This was a most unusual comet. It continues to come by every 5.2 years, was last here about a year and a half ago, and at that time they found a couple fragments near the comet. Almost every time it comes by, they'll find another little fragment ahead or behind the main comet. The comet is now known as 141P Mockholtz. To recap the podcast, what's up this coming week? See Saturn and its rings. The opposition surge as the rings brighten up for a few days around August 14th. You have been listening to Looking Up with Don, podcast episode number 136 for August 10th, 2022. I'm Don Mockholtz. Once again, the related website for this podcast is donmockholtz.com. That is spelled D-O-N. M-A-C-H-H-O-L-Z dot com. Two H's. 
You can contact me at dontheastronomer at gmail.com. Once again, dontheastronomer at gmail.com. God willing and pod willing, I'll be back next week for another episode of Looking Up with Don. We will discuss what's up in the sky, all that and more. Thank you for listening. See the sky this week. I'll see you next week.